we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. We're trying something new today, something a little different than what we normally do, which typically is a deep dive into some given topic of the day. Today, we're going broad and we're going wide and touching on a bunch of different updates that you might want to be paying attention to within the privacy, cybersecurity, internet governance, and AI spaces from the past couple of weeks. So today's episode will be a little shorter, a little more bite-sized, but hopefully give you some useful resources. So to get started, a case that I've been following for some time is the Federal Trade Commission's case against the data broker called Kachava. And if you haven't listened to our episode with Justin Sherman on the subject of data brokers that came out a few weeks ago, you might want to check that out if you want a little bit more background. But to give the TLDR of the case so far, back in August of 2022, so a little over a year ago, the Federal Trade Commission brought a lawsuit against Kochava under its Section 5 authority to enforce against unfair or deceptive trade practices specifically and sort of novelly with Kochava focusing on the unfair part of that equation. And essentially, the FTC alleged that Kochava's making available of sensitive personal information of individuals' mobile location data, which is what Kochava specializes in, uh, was an unfair trade practice because of the potential of that data to put individuals at risk, especially related to potentially their activities of attending religious institutions, uh, seeking reproductive health care, things like this. So Kochava is based in Sandpoint, Idaho, and so the case was brought in the District of Idaho before Judge Beelan Windmill. And essentially, back in May, the judge granted Kochava's motion to dismiss the FTC's case against it, basically saying that the FTC had to show a little more concretely that there would be a substantial likelihood of harm stemming from Kochava's actions, among a couple of other things. But the judge did give the FTC the chance to refile an amended complaint, which they did in June. And 
just a couple of days ago, this amended complaint was unsealed, meaning that the public finally had access to it. Now, the interesting thing about this amended complaint is it contains a lot more information about the extent of Kachava's data collection practices and also takes aim at how Kachava would allow others to access or purchase this data. Specifically, the FTC alleges within this amended complaint that Kachava would approve requests for this data sometimes with a really quick turnaround within a single day at times without, quote, any additional inquiries or requesting additional information about the purchaser or their intended use, and also had lax procedures about who Kuchava was selling this data to and allowed purchasers to use, you know, generic personal email addresses rather than a company or a .gov or .edu level domain, and also would allow purchasers to identify as self and give extremely broad reasoning for what they wanted to do with that data. It's implicated by the commission that because these controls around who could access this data are so lax, there's really nothing in a threat actor's way to be able to access this data that could be used to inflict really substantial harm. So now we'll see what happens. We'll see if this is sufficient for the judge to allow the case against Kochava to proceed from the commission, but it's also worth noting that Kochava's efforts to diminish the commission's ability to bring this case and also its pursuit of sanctions against specific FTC attorneys on the case uh, have so far not been successful. So this is going to be fascinating to keep an eye on, especially for the implications potentially to the FTC's unfairness authority, which it thus far hasn't used too much in the data protection context so far. It's really leaned on the deceptive part of its Section 5 authority. But if you want more context or details on the history of this case, I wrote an article all about it for the American Bar Association. So we'll link that in the show notes. But this is one to watch, folks. Hi, everyone. Lemma here. For a lot of people, including myself, antitrust is a doozy. But today, I'm going to try to help us make sense, at least a little bit, of what is the U.S. versus Google antitrust case by the Department of Justice, also known as the DOJ for our abbreviation lovers. To start, why is this case such a big deal? Because this is the first time 
the DOJ is taking on a major big tech company over its business practices since its attempted trial against Microsoft in 2000. This case is also the first antitrust lawsuit in a set of other ongoing lawsuits between federal and state antitrust enforcers and major tech platforms. Right now, as we are currently recording this podcast, there is a Federal Trade Commission case against Meta and its acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp, in addition to another case by the FTC against Amazon over its marketplace platform. So clearly, the U.S. government is real busy. So why are they trying to, you know, put Google in court? And how could future antitrust law or we as internet users be affected by this? Let's kind of dig in here. To answer the why, the DOJ is investigating whether Google is illegally using its leading industry position and power to limit competition in the internet search and search advertising business, with the department arguing that Google is striking anti-competitive deals with Apple and other companies for a favored placement of its search engine while still holding the dominant market share. So basically, they're trying to figure out um, why when you open Safari um, or a different kind of uh, web app on your phone that the default search engine is Google. The DOJ is investigating whether they're illegally doing this through their position and market power. Um, and if that is striking anti-competitive deals because it's limiting businesses and other forms of innovation to have similar positions on our phones, our computers, etc. This trial has emerged from a several years investigation into Google's practices by the government, as we continue to see a series of interests from policymakers as they decide how to regulate competition, which could be even more critical in the AI era um, and its rapid development and integration into several sectors, with some experts saying that the case may even play a role in whether Google can transfer similar market search power to AI especially in terms of, you know, asking um, chatbots questions and where they're scanning that information from. Do they scanning information from one particular search site than another? And questions like such. The public facts we know from the case so far point to market dominance that Google search engine has maintained almost 90% of market share for several years with enforcers as a majority agreeing that the company overwhelmingly dominates the search engine sector. However, it is still not certain whether Google abused this position against other search engine rivals as we sort of navigate and try to understand what our antitrust laws say about this, because there's also a question of, is it because Google has power and influence or is it because consumers prefer Google? Is it because Google is just better? Is it because consumers tend to have a really hard time switching once they become particularly comfortable with a search engine? There are many different kinds of questions, whether it's legally or psychologically, that's sort of making this case a little bit difficult to see the end point. Um, but with this case coming to continue 
on for the next nine weeks, and a decision probably won't come until next year. What does this mean for internet consumers? It's hard to say, but if the GOJ's case is successful, some experts argue that it could change the way we access the internet, such as blocking Google from using its money and influence to dominate your default search engine on your phone.、Um, also, because the DOJ argues from a consumer interest perspective that we lack a choice from choosing what search engine to use, giving Google potentially no pressure to improve its product.、Um, but we still don't really know if this is necessarily true. Whether the outcome of this case could help or hurt you. Very much depends on if Google is your dominant search engine choice. We could see a much different Google that is greater or slower, or even see consumers floating to a different search engine such as Bing or DuckDuckGo and choosing it as their next quote-unquote default browser. Whatever happens, this case, along with several others, does indicate government interest in preparing and understanding the evolving digital economy, its influencers, and if our courts and laws are prepared to interpret and deal with them. So please be sure to follow this case.、Um, it's pretty interesting. All our experts at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry will also be following this case. Next, it's been a big couple of weeks for AI. Just a couple weeks ago, the Biden administration released its much-anticipated executive order on artificial intelligence and addressed a couple of things that are really relevant for privacy as well, including support for a bipartisan federal privacy bill. Just days later, Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to the United Kingdom for its first ever AI safety summit, which was attended by global leaders and was the first summit that we've seen on AI to comprehensively cover topics related to global governance of the technology. So we'll see. How AI continues to unfold, it seems like a lot of different countries are trying to sort of lead the world in AI regulation and sort of addressing the potential for AI to cause problems within our society. So far, this executive order is one of the most prominent actions that we've seen from global leadership so far. But Brazil is also trying to be active in this space, having requested comments, notably both with a portal for Portuguese and English submissions for an AI and data protection regulatory sandbox. There's been a lot of discussion and debate since. AI really exploded into the conversation with really the release of OpenAI's ChatGPT product to the wider public back about a year ago. But privacy professionals have been wondering what their stake in AI issues is. Is AI fundamentally a privacy issue? Is it Separate, and so far, the executive order, as well as Brazil 
and other countries' actions are showing that perhaps AI and privacy issues may be more interlinked than some may have originally thought. So we're going to continue to follow this and see how this develops and the impact that all the hype around AI might have on furthering privacy legislation and regulation, especially in the U.S. where we're still missing a federal privacy law. Hello, everybody. This is Joe Catapano, Class 4 Fellow at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Lots of news in the tech policy space going on this week, and I want to spend a few minutes on the reauthorization of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act in the United States. So to start, let's take a step back and understand what Section 702 of what they call FISA is all about. So FISA was enacted initially in 1978, and it set out procedures for physical and electronic surveillance and collection of foreign intelligence information. Uh, It's been amended several times, including after 9-11 as part of the Patriot Act, which raised the profile of FISA itself in the news and among the broader, uh, not only American public, but, but abroad as well. So 702 was originally enacted in 2008 as part of the FISA Amendments Act, and it provides the legal framework for the collection of foreign intelligence information on non-U.S. persons located outside of the United States. Now, there's overwhelming agreement that it has been a critical tool for U.S. national security agencies in their efforts to monitor and collect information on potential threats to U.S. national security. The key aspect of Section 702 is the ability to conduct surveillance on foreign targets, which may incidentally capture communications involving U.S. persons. And this incidental collection has been the subject of concern for many uh including privacy advocates and lawmakers who believe that it poses a threat to the Fourth Amendment rights of American citizens. Now, they say bipartisanship is dead in Congress, but that's not entirely true. There's agreement out there, and it's not just on naming post offices. Enter the reauthorization of Section 702, which has been a contentious issue. But currently, there's a bipartisan group of co-sponsors that has put forward a bill to reauthorize Section 702 with some significant reforms. The co-sponsors of this bill include Democratic Senators Wyden and Lofgren, as well as Republican Senators Mike Lee and Warren Davidson. The proposed bill seeks to enhance transparency and accountability in the surveillance programs authorized under Section 702. Their bill would mandate that government personnel obtain a warrant before searching the 702 database for information on Americans, restricting its use to national security purposes, as well as introducing what they're calling life and death emergency exceptions and allow for the use of the data to protect individuals or U.S. companies from cyber attacks. So what are the prospects for this bill's passage by December 31st, 2023, when 702 expires? It's not exactly clear. While there's strong bipartisan support for reauthorizing Section 702 with reforms, there are also lawmakers who have concerns about whether the proposed reforms go far enough in protecting civil liberties. Some argue that the current safeguards are inadequate, while others emphasize the importance of maintaining the surveillance capabilities necessary to protect the nation from threats. 
Lawmakers will need to iron out the details further in the coming weeks, as the House has its own 702 reauthorization bill as well. For his part, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy Director Dr. Rahul Gupta penned an op-ed in the Washington Post calling on Congress to reauthorize 702, highlighting use of the tool in the government's efforts to keep illicit fentanyl out of communities. There's still a long way to go, but seeing movement in a bipartisan fashion on anything these days sure seems like like a win. Stay tuned to the Tech Policy Grind for the latest analysis on this and other tech policy news, both in Washington and around the world throughout the year. Now back to Rima. And last but not least, out of the European Union, the EU recently issued a new law under its already existing Digital Services Act, this time taking a particular focus on targeted political advertising. This law entails that advertisers for political purposes will be allowed to use the personal data that they collect for targeted advertising only if they've obtained the data from the individual with their explicit and specific consent for these purposes. So already we've seen from Meta specifically for its Facebook and Instagram products issue a statement for its advertisers that they will require political advertisers to state when its ads have been digitally altered or when they've been made using artificial intelligence. And this comes just a day after the EU's agreement on this political ads law. Now, it's worth pointing out that this statement from Meta is not really addressing specifically what is covered by this law, but it goes to show that the platform, and perhaps we'll see this as a trend from businesses in general, starting to think a little bit more about the implications of AI and the relationship between AI technologies and privacy protections. Now, could be completely separate from this EU law and could be just a complete coincidence that this statement comes following that political ads law, but it'll be interesting to see how the relationship between AI, privacy, consent, and truth start to interact. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show. And this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.